Hello again everybody and welcome back to Around the World in 80 Cigars with your host Nick Hammond. I hope everybody is staying well um, and if you are slowly but surely getting out and about as I am then I hope you're enjoying that and staying safe. Thanking our lucky stars that we seem slowly to be moving in the right direction. Let me first up thank my friends and colleagues who have helped me along the way in this podcast. Salta Cigars, dear Lawrence Davis, S-A-T-T-E-R-Cigars.com of Mayfair. A more pleasant spot to wander past and grab a good cigar. You will not find Rutherford's England, uh, R-U-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D-S, England.com. Fantastic leather goods, handmade English bridal leather. You will want for nothing finer. And to Bovida, of course. Bovidainc.com, B-O-V-E-D-A-I-N-C.com. These specialists in two-way humidification. I hope you're all in fine, fine form, as I say. And an interesting guy this week I'd like you to listen to. You may be forgiven if you follow a lot of the news and the sort of general zeitgeist that um, unless you become a vegan and farmers are all hung, drawn and quartered, that uh, the future of the planet looks bleak. Well, uh, as in most things, the truth is neither black nor white. Um, and I'd like you to listen to a chap this week who may just make you think a little differently. Those of us who spend time and live in the countryside and work in the countryside realise that there is and has to be a way to make that countryside work as well as just being pretty to look at. Um, and the gentleman who I speak to this week is turning into something of a legend. Um, his little farm down on the in uh, Cornwall, stroke Devon border, uh, is a farm that you will hear mentioned more and more. And just remember that you heard about it here first. I met him couple of years ago when I was doing a food story down there uh, went down and met him and chatted to him and we went out for a dinner in a fantastic pub down there um, the deer rod and line just brilliant very very Cornish very local fantastic very happy place uh, and we spent a lot of time talking about farming down there and what it means to be a farmer and how to make that work in this modern strange world that we live in and he really is quite a character he's done all sorts of things he's run pubs and restaurants lived on a barge in london and he's up sticks and come back to cornwall and for the first time in his life become a farmer and he is well worth a follow on his insta's uh, insta feed but more importantly, he's worth listening to. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Matt Chatfield. Hello, Matt. Hi, Nick. How are you? All right? <laughs> Splendid, <laughs> mate. How are you, buddy? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the ledge, but it's okay. I'm, gra gravity's losing at the moment. I'm winning. So I think Good. we're all right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, tell us what you've been up to, mate, because you haven't always been a farmer by any stretch. 
I sort of, um, I suppose in some ways I have really. So basically, where I'm actually sat at the moment um, is in Devon. Um, I'll explain why that's quite funny a bit later on. But um, so basically, um, my family have actually farmed this farm. It's only a small holding, about 80 acres for about 400 years. Crumbs, right? Um, so, you know, it's a fair bit of farming in the background. And essentially, um, we used to farm on behalf of the biggest state, about 360 of those. And then 40 years ago, um, because of inheritance tax, um, it meant the estate had to sort of sell up. And um, in the yeah, first time in 360 years, it was an opportunity for well, my granddad then, who um, to actually buy the property. So, yeah, so Which basically estate we were... was that, Matt? I don't, know, I don't know if it's a state, more of just some really wealthy people. But, um, right, right. I'll just say it's now a nursing home, or just opposite now. Um, I need to sort of go into, I think the people who owned it when my granddad had, it, had about 140 years. I'm guessing it was a large estate 140 years before that. That's as far as I've gone back really with who owned that. Um, but essentially, I mean, what is really interesting is, you know, whoever's there before, my family all actually obviously worked with them very well for about 360 years, which is, wow. you know, it's quite, and so if you, Going to my local, by the graveyard, you know, essentially probably about 200 graves. I think about 180 are my relatives. So, you know, um, oh. I think um, I can, I, um, the, the reason I'm chuckling is obviously I think, you know, the, the chances of a bit of natural inbreeding might be quite high. I couldn't possibly kill me. No, it's a, I'm in Devon saying that. If I said it in Cornwall, I'd, I'd be, well, probably get shot. But um, <laughs> no, so basically that's where I am now. Um, so you could say farming was in my blood, but because it was a, a small home, my granddad, um, I mean, I you know, don't know what we'll, we'll discuss later on, but um, I mean, he essentially was given a lot of money during the sort of 60s to feed the nation after the war. And he turned it from okay. like a, a livestock sort of mixed farm into a dairy farm. He was the first person to actually bring Frisians um, into the Southwest. Um, really. And but now, now I sort of know what I'm doing and sort of been doing it for a year and a half. I find that, you know, it just led him to a world of, incredibly hard work and he's probably the hardest working man I've, I've ever known um and he had to be really to be able to you know milk freezers on our land but it meant that he changed the land a lot but essentially when you know he made a really nice living from milking about 40 cows like probably about 100 sheep um and but then you know as time got went on you know with various political shenanigans and sort of marketplaces that were you know the price of milk went down and you know it became very difficult for him so he never encouraged us to do it basically, um, even though I loved it. And mum actually started her own dairy farm. Um, you know, mum was like a single mum, three of us, but still managed to start a dairy farm. And that was at a similar time. So all I saw really was really struggling farmers. Um, and it was something we, you know, my, only my granddad wanted that life for us. So I think, yeah, so never encouraged to do it really, is the truth. Um, yeah. But even though I loved it. So, yeah. And so, where did yeah, you, so I think what did you end up doing? Because for a long time you were involved in, pubs and and the trade in london you got um, to know the chefs and stuff well yeah so before that um i left went to college did environmental studies which is um after about 30 years i'm finally actually using it it's probably all out of date by the way the stuff <laughs> I learned 30 years ago um i actually did publishing for 10 years um after university maybe 12 years and hated every minute of it, it was rubbish at it um just didn't like it but you know did all right um but then but i suppose when I, 12 yeah 12 years ago um yeah my when my nan died my granddad died firstly and i must admit you know when he died i was living a fairly hedonistic lifestyle in london and he got a horrible disease and i only came back two or three times to see him which is probably my biggest regret in life really but then six years later my nan got very ill and i moved back down and spent a lot of time with her for about you know six months to 12 months when she wasn't too great either actually but it was then during that time i was like 
right, I need to maybe think about actually you know, taking on the family farm or doing something. So that was quite an inspirational time, really. That was a time when it was you know, a lot of deep thinking. I probably needed to change. I, when I say hedonistic, I was. I, I really do mean hedonistic. There was no messing about. There was no messing about. It was just at the tail end of like people in publishing going out for lunch times. You know, like it was. I remember it well, mate. You probably do. The back end of that era. You know, so I, I suited it very well. Um, and the evenings were pretty lively as well. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Um, so. But basically, yeah, so then um, what I actually done, um, I then sort of really, you know, realised I needed to do something. You know, and I was very close to the man. It was a pretty torrid last few months, but I did a lot of thinking. I thought, well, I'm going to have a crack at doing the farming farm. The two issues I had were I, I decided if I was going to do farming, I never wanted anyone else to decide whether I failed or not. You know, I'd seen how hard my granddad worked, but invariably it was, you know, the milk marketing board and it was the, the big corporations buying milk that made meant that he failed, really. Um, and also, I did know I absolutely knew nothing about farming. <laughs> so I was like, right, <laughs> if I'm if I'm going to do this, I need to make life a bit easier. So I thought I need to create a market for really high end. Well, I thought then actually at the time I thought I'd probably be doing red ruby cattle. Red ruby is like a beautiful red cow. Yeah. Its proper name is North Devon, so it's actually synonymous with this part of Devon, okay. and it's designed, you know. Um. So I thought it'd be that, but anyway, I thought the only way I could do this is, is to you know get a big market you know create a market for high-end meat and then sort of farm it so to do that i approached my butcher so the chap i approached is ian warren um incredible guy he's the son of philip warren yeah philip warren you know now getting an incredible name you know across for across the country now really but when i first approached him 12 years ago maybe even 15 years ago actually um they were just our height you know they were our local butcher in our local town um and but everyone just you know they're just an absolutely incredible family everyone just you know huge respect for them and they're essentially just farming you know getting beef from local farmers having hanging her carcasses doing the way they always did and i think then like where we are in cornwall it's probably like the third poorest region in western europe um yes but our town isn't you know we're not in a tourist place like launceston my town is you know we're, we're pretty you know we're certainly not a wealthy town um but the warrens I think the town's got a population of about 4,000, but they had about 6,000 customers a week. So everyone all over the place just shops at Warren's. It's always been that way, hasn't it? I've been coming down your way for many years, and I always remember people saying, you know, you've got to go to Warren's at launch. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it is properly, you know, it just shows it's possible, really. Um, You know, so everyone thought they're great there locally, but I literally really knew nothing about meat, um, but I approached Ian the Sun um, and said, look, I know London quite well. Um, why don't I have a crack at, you know, going back to London and seeing if I can sell meat to restaurants? So that was the start of it, really. And Ian sort of went through. It was a time when um, Ian was just, you know, he was quite young. He was going, wanted to get into the family business. Philip Warren had obviously already created an incredibly successful business. And I think Ian, you know, his dad would actually say himself, you know, didn't quite know how Ian would make an impact on the business. So I think he jumped onto right. my idea of London. And to be honest, for 18 months, you know, basically the idea was, yeah, we were going to supply restaurants in London. We had no idea whether it would be good. You know, we just didn't know how good meat was in London. We just had nothing to compare. We just knew, you know, is are the Warrens really good? Are they just average? You know, what? But, you know, we went up there. Um, and I suppose it took about a year and a half. So I always sort of say, I think Ian's done a podcast that's coming out quite soon where he mentions the same story. Oh, really? But, um, well, well, I think so him, when you speak to him, tell him he must come on mine and I'll hear yeah, the other I'll side of the story. Yeah, he's, 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 um, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm hoping he catches me in a good mood. He's quite, he's, uh, yeah, he's got a lot on his plate at the moment, poor chap. But he's yeah. doing very well. Um, but basically, um, we approached, so I, I literally phoned up restaurants and the first restaurant I phoned was Shea Bruce. 
So that like, used to be Harvey's, you know, it used to yeah. be, you know, like, um, you know, very, very famous restaurant, got lots of history. And there was a, a chef called Matt Christmas, um, who's pretty old school, really, old school. Old school in terms of doesn't suffer fools gladly. Did you get a mouthful of abuse then? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, mean, I phoned him up, I said that. I'm really sorry to bother you. Literally, the conversation was, I'm really sorry to bother you. Um, you know, I work for a Cornish butcher, you know, we're selling in London. I've got no idea how good our beef is. I think it might be quite good. Um, would you like to try some? And he, he basically said, you sound like an absolute idiot. But um, yeah, we'll give it, a, we'll, you know, why, why don't you come in and show us? So I went in and basically, yeah, it was, you know, at that stage it was, um, we were only aging, you know, we, we basically have whole carcass. We we're only aging meat for three weeks. Um, Shea Bruce started taking it and they took it, you know, basically like about 10 whole ribs a week. But that was probably pretty well it for about a year and a half. You know, like we were really struggling. I think at times, Ian, well, his parents thought, you know, is this working? But because I was actually doing all the deliveries myself, we were working out weird and wonderful ways to get out there. I mean, it was crazy times and it was incredibly hard work. But taking um, it, when you took it to him and he tasted it, he immediately said, this is bloody brilliant, did he? Um, no, I think, no, I think it was, um, and I would say at that stage, the beef was really good. Um, I think what they were getting was actually really good. Um, but I think it's more, you know, I think it was a fact, what was special was the fact that we could tell him exactly where it's from. Right. So, you know, because, because we're getting whole carcass, we're working directly with farmers, we actually have the ear tag on there. Um, so we can actually say where it's from. And I suppose that was a bit different. Um, I think flavor-wise, what we learned was, at that stage, we only aged for three weeks. So basically, Warren used like dry aging um, process. We've now, you know, it's changed a hell of a lot in the last 12 years. They've invested hugely. But, you know, they, would, they hang whole carcass. Um, at that stage, they were dry aging it for three weeks. Um, Matt yeah. Christmas basically wanted it for four weeks. Um, and that was the first, you know, beginnings of the Warrens beginning to do that. So we are taking ribs off the bone, aging a bit further. And I think then when we started aging it and doing more, you could tell it was more to the chef's palate. You know, like, you know, we're obviously very much geared up in Lawson for the, for the, you know, the, the, the normal customer's palate. And I think they love a three-week age carcass, you know, at that stage, definitely. Um, but the chef just wanted more. They wanted to be, you know, and the longer you try meat, um, a like the enzymes work to break it down to make it tender, but you also rem- remove moisture, which adds a more intense flavour. Yes. So that was the beginning of it. So basically, you know, the meat I think was great, but this is the important bit. By working with these chefs, they started actually, and the Warrens, you know, it's quite hard when you've had a business for thirty four years, and the chef says, "Well, actually, this isn't good enough for me." You know, you can either like tell them to, to bugger off, or yeah, you can and I'd imagine then, from know, a Cornish perspective, they think bloody uh, country bastards. Yeah, you know. I think- well, I think so. It's um, I'm trust. I don't even know online. I don't even know if I can tell. This, this is a long time. <laughs> so I think I might I might be able to tell this story now. Um, it's, it was one of the funniest things. So Matt Christmas is quite a silly guy, you know. And um, I don't trust. I've never even said this publicly, but there was one day where um, he said to me, Matt, you know, like I need the best beef. I need you know, it needs to be four week aged. I sometimes worry, you know, worry with Ian Warren that he's more, you know, he's more worried about putting like the housewives of Cornwall before me, you know, I think he's taking them more seriously than me. And I was like, Matt, 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 no, obviously don't think about that. And then I then phoned Ian and then Ian in that very conversation said, would that be probably that, that Christmas, he wants this, he wants that. If he thinks I'm putting him ahead of the, the housewives of Cornwall, he can stop <laughs> And I was like, at that point, like, at that point, and I was like, no, no, he doesn't think that. He doesn't think that. And I just thought at that point, that's why I sort of possibly owe my money was because if, if they'd actually had a conversation at that time, it would have been very It might have gone slightly ballistic. But, but I, I, yeah, it was, yeah. But, um, but basically, what happened, this is the beginnings of our business, was that um, just at that point, a lot of guys were coming back from the likes of Amnoma and, um, you know, these young chefs. And they weren't like your partying hardcore chefs. They were really serious chefs. Who, yeah. you know, like, there's likes of, say, um, you know, don't tell me, but I say James Lowe, 
um, who's got the um, Lyles. Um, you had Isaac Hale's now got the Clove Club. A chap called um, Tom Adams, who's you know what does pick you and I do Coombsay. But these guys, they 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 really they've gone away. They've realised how important um, knowing where your meat comes from is. And I I came at a time when I could tell them that. So I think they all slowly started hearing about me and what I was up to. And I went around and met them all and got to know them. And that and then basically, I suppose our biggest moment. You'll find this. I just go on. By the way, I thought Nick, you'd actually talk more. <laughs> I tend to just go on. Well, I, t- I will if I can get a word in edgeways, mate. <laughs> <laughs> feel free to ask. Feel free to ask questions. No, it's all good. You go. Okay. Um. So this is probably the most important bit thing that ever happened to us. Really was, and luckily I'm basically really stupid and a terrible businessman, which, which basically you know, sort of went to our favour. But um, so I met Tom Adams. Um, he was about 21, 22. Blonde-haired guy, um, he basically started something called Pick You, which at that stage was just a runaway success. It was like basically, you know, using a well, barbecue. Went to, he went to Texas, came back, barbecue meat in a proper traditional style. Okay, really it's huge out there, isn't it? The, pit, the, yeah, the huge, fire yeah. pit and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So he went out there and just realised we were doing it all wrong. So he came back and he just started a trailer down on the South Bank and it went absolutely crazy. Um, it then, but if you, you know, the, but this is, I sort of say this about some people, I say Philip Warren's the same. Some people I would say have got a genius about them and it's just luckily that Philip Warren's a butcher and like Tom Adams is a chef because they're able yeah. to, you know, really lucky really. Cause I think those sort of people could do anything they want really. Um, so Tom asked me to go and see him. So I went and saw him and li- literally like 21 year old kid, I was probably like 38, 39. He asked me three questions and I couldn't answer any of them. It was too like technical. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what I'll do, mate. Well, why don't you jump, we'll jump in the car. Well, we'll go down to Corbin. You can actually go and meet my butcher. So, like, and I didn't even think about it. You know, like, as a middleman, you're meant to really keep everyone apart. That's sort of how you make your money. But yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, nah, let's, you know. Um, so we took Tom down and it was really special. We went and met Ian and instantly they got on because, you know, both so into me. And Tom's just a lovely guy who's not going to, you know, he's no ego there when it comes to me like you know he just wants to learn and right. find them and so he's just asking questions ian was answering and there's one time we were basically it was actually strange enough to shay bruce do the whole rib and then we took it off the bone this is actually true i'm now connecting the uh, two things now so you take the whole rib off the bone, and then you're left with basically the rib cage um tom adams looked at those and said what do you do with the rib you know the actual rib bones and um, Ian said, well, you know, we actually trimmed them and put that into pasty and then we actually pay for the bones to be, you know, like um, got rid of. Yeah. And Tom's like, well, actually, why don't you just cut them off and I'll, I'll actually take those bones and see if I can do something. So literally, like, just from that one, him seeing that, him, a chef actually looking at the butchery process, we ended up saving money because we went to get the bones. We were actually earning probably a couple more quid a kilo for the actual meat. And Tom had something that he was buying for like a quid, but he was actually selling for like about eight quid. And, you know, so everyone won. And well, he was customers. selling the bones on, was he? Well, he, there was still a lot of meat on that bone. So normally you'd trim off that bone and that, that trim would go into make pasties. Yeah. And the bones, obviously, you've got the bones left. So then you would sell that. But Tom was basically, you know, barbecuing it on the bones, on the bone, and then serving it on the bone. Ah. And very, you know, he then had to, you know, I suppose, pay for the, to dispose of the, the bones. But it just meant that, Tom had something incredible. He was earning his GP, his, you know, his gross profit. He was, you know, making money. And the Warrens were actually, you know, basically, um, you know, not having to dispose of the bones and they were making more money. It was just, yeah. So, like, as okay. soon as I saw that, like, I was like, this is the future, you know. So, basically, then, all these chefs who, who what, you know, heard about us and got in contact, you know, we just invited them down to Cornwall. So, we spent about three years, you know, I was working hard then. I was delivering five days a week. I think I was working in a pub in London, but... Every spare time I had, I was driving chefs down to London, Cornwall to meet the butcher and see the farmers. And, you know, and 
so in time we just started this really i said i hate to use the word exclusive but it was it was sort of um you know if you tried hard enough to find us and we met and we all got on and i thought you know you might my butch would actually really like you and you you know then you know jump in the car and we'll go down and yeah so yeah. that's how it all started so within about so a year and a half it was really hard and then for the next three years it was just finding the right people and then we realized we didn't really want to step on other people's toes you know in london you know there's a lot of good butchers so i became then quite good at just finding very young talented restaurateurs get them early you know realize that they they had a lot about them get them to cornwall and so you know we ended up after like 12 years with a really really strong london business of just really decent you know human chefs with empathy um who understood we need to make money they and we understood their business and yeah, and so it just became an incredibly strong business, really. And that's obviously, you know, along the journey, we met Wes. You know, so Wes I met about two years in, and then obviously, you know, I still know him now, like 12, you know, sort of 10 years later. So that's, that's the, the beauty of, of those relationships, yeah. isn't it? Because chefs yeah. do tend to move about, but if yeah. they, they're only as good as their ingredients. So if they love what you do, then they stay with you, right? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and it's a two-way thing. If we like them, they like us. Um, yeah, and, you know, it doesn't feel like wasted time then. Um yeah, so, but, you know, but towards the end of, you know, things, you know, probably the Warrens, you know, probably got like a, a waiting list of like 40 or 50 restaurants. You know, it's pretty incredible. And a lot, really? you know, wow. my job really was to sort of turn people down rather than win new business. It got like, it's quite funny, really. And I've but been down thinking, to see, to see the, to yeah. the, the Warren empire as it is now. It was, I'm sure it wasn't like that 12 years ago, but, yeah. um, you know, just so the listener knows, they've got these fabulous purpose-built butchers with massive fridges you've got what a dozen butchers at any time working on meat in there no i'd um, say more no probably about um so you've got the shop the shop is actually still their biggest customer so they in, they basically spent they basically um spent i'm not going to say the figures but they spent a huge amount of money on a new cutting plant because you know it's obvious the london business was taken off yeah but i think if you actually look at their customers the actual single individual's customer is their shop which basically shows how busy that shop is That's um, amazing and, and it's a little shop reckon, on a industrial estate isn't it yeah well, it used to be in the town. So basically, you know, they used to have a lovely um, shop in the town. Um, and that was a butcher for like 120 years. Um, then Tesco's came along but, but with a big, huge superstore in our town. And I think, you know, most people would think, right, well, that's the end of it because everyone's going to shop there. But what, what Philip Warren and Ian Warren and um, his wife, Margaret, who's also pretty incredible, decided to do was actually build a slightly out of town one that shop themselves with parking. Yeah, and that's you a know, brave thing to do at that. Manage, I mean, that's one of the ballsiest moves of all time. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like... Yeah. And now, like, I think it must be... That Tesco's, I reckon, if you if you looked at, like, that Tesco's compared to, like, Nationwide, I reckon they must sell a hell of a lot of meat, <laughs> less meat than anyone else. Like, because, really? you know, they must do. They must do. I've never, you know, I don't know if they want to do the sums, but... But, you know, everyone in town buys the Warren's meat and loads of people from Cornwall buy it. Like, you know, I, I you know, it must, you know, be really interesting to see um, how much meat they sell compared to like, you know, other places around the country. Because there's not many Warrens. It's, to be honest, it's probably, I don't even know if there's anyone who compares to them really. Um, but they invested a huge amount. Anyway, answering the further, the various point, I think the Warrens employ about 120 people. Um, and, I, and I don't know if I'm really meant to say this or not, but obviously it's, it's a, you know, it's a small rural town. There's not much money about, and you know, there's a lot of kids who leave school who probably would struggle to, you know, like, you know, yeah. probably like slightly naughty, a little bit. Um, Absolutely, the warrants, there's nothing to the, do, right? There's nothing. Yeah, and it's hard. You know, there's not many jobs, so the warrants sort of take those people and mould them into, you know, they basically train them for four years and they mould them into proper men or women and really give them a, you know, a craft, and then 
you know, help them along in life. So, you know, it's a hell of a role they, they you know, do in my town. You know, it's, you know, it's not just a butcher. It's like they're the hub of the community. Well, that's really. the thing. It's another. easy to say, you know, it's a butcher's shop, but you forget all the rest of that sort of stuff, yeah. don't you? And that in a little town is a huge impact socially, economically um, yeah. and everything else. And, 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 you know, that if you are good at that and you become a responsible person, like you say, like the Warrens are, you are changing lives down there. Yeah, and it's, and it's also the farmers as well, you know, I mean, you don't think you go into that, but, you know, they buy directly from the farmers and they essentially, you know, probably about, this is, I mean, I'm going to go on to another subject. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I, um, so something what it leads to is, um, so what made the Warrens really special? And again, this is why Philip Warren is, you know, and, you know, and everything he does is, is rubbed off and is sunny. And, you know, I mean, Ian's had an incredible teacher and Ian's, you know, he's his own man as well. So, um, but, during like the 80s and 90s um there became this huge thing about farmers started buying really big european breeds a bit like my granddad with the frisians actually they started buying charolais and limousines huge protein so basically not really suited to sort of grass all year round too heavy they definitely need to be wintered inside they needed huge amounts of protein but they were very economic you know like you get these animals big there's hardly any fat they get big the abattoir wants them the supermarket wants them and it's just a really good you know economic thing so do, they, everyone, do they necessarily taste great, Matt? Um, um, they, they, I mean, they just won't taste great. I mean, you know, to be honest, now and again you'll get one, and it's you know, it's actually really special, you know. Um, but by and large, you, what you really need is a native animal. Um, right. I'm not, I, not not being all Brexity here. It's um, you need a native breed because basically, like, yeah, trying to explain it really. But um, so where I'm now in, in North Devon, our cow was called the North Devon, and now called a Red Ruby. That Red Ruby the farming would have been really tough. So what they'd have done, they'd have had a normal cow and over centuries they would have, they would have bred the traits that they needed. So here it's really yeah. marshy. So if an animal had really big clumpy feet, they would breed from that one because they needed, you know, they, the bigger the feet, the less it's going to impact on the land and, you yeah. know, it'll be able to walk around. But you'd also want one because it's marshland. The quality of grass is terrible, but what you want is an animal that can actually get fat on on quality you know quality grass is not that great so it's basically yeah. you know you start breeding for the traits you want so it's like and it you know can get wet here so and it's, the winters are pretty tough um so you'd want if you had an animal with a big thick coat you would breed that so slowly all the different cows around the country you know that's why you've got say like an Aberdeen Angus or you've got a Highland or you know you've got a Hereford those breeds became very synonymous with the area because they were perfectly they were bred to suit yeah. that area yeah of course but so what we always feel is you need to breed the right animal in the right place to suit its, you know, the way it is. And that's how you get the absolute best flavor. But obviously those animals can be really fat. So when Ian Warren, you know, looks at his figures, you know, if there's a lot of bone and a lot of fat and you've got to trim a lot off, then, you know, obviously you're not going to be making as much money. So for the supermarkets, they want to be these massive European animals. And it is protein heavy. They haven't got the marbling. Um, and they just, um, they haven't, what do you need if you're going to dry age an animal is a really good fat cover because that's, you know, how you dry age it. You know, it slowly releases the moisture. With those European animals, right. there's no fat cover. So you just can't dry age it. The only way you can do is basically backpack it. Or, you know, it's, um, so it's fresh. There's, you know, it hasn't been so the meat's, like less flavour. So it's taken me about 12 years to know, but I've still forgotten more than we actually know. <laughs> so like, it's like, yeah, so I'm trying to explain it. Um, <laughs> no, it's so good. I understand Philip, that. The, the flavour's yeah. in the fat, right? 
Well, the flavour's in the fat, but also the flavour is, um, the more an animal walks, um, the more you get a flavour. So if an animal's just stood still being fed grain, um, then it's not using the muscle. So you know when you get like a beautiful dark piece of meat, that's essentially yeah. hemoglobin. So hemoglobin, the more an animal walks, the more hemoglobin it produces and the darker the meat. Okay. So if you get, if you, so if you get, and that's how you build flavours. So the meat becomes tougher because it's walked a lot. It has flavour. But then if you do the dry aging process, you've basically got enzyme, an enzyme called calpane within the meat. And that, you activate it so that as it ages, it starts breaking down that meat. And that's why it goes tender. Yeah. So that, you know, so, so, you know, so if you've got a, a, a native animal, it's clearly going to taste a lot better. But to get that flavour and the tenderness, you do need to dry age it. And that's why, you, you know, and that's, and obviously as you dry age something, it's losing moisture and, and the butcher's losing money. So he has to charge more. But what Philip Warren did was, was just genius. Um, Cornwall is wet and Devon's wet. You know, where the Warrens are, they buy from Cornwall and Devon. Um, so, and you just haven't got the amount of grass and protein needed for these big animals. Right. So Philip Warren, so Philip Warren, you know, and Ian has always said to farmers, if you've got the right land and you, you, you know, it's, it's dryish and you can feed these heavy animals, then do it. You will make more money. But if your land isn't suitable for these big animals, you're going to go bankrupt. So what we'll do is we'll ask you to carry on feeding from these traditional breeds and then we'll actually pay you, you know, more money than the abattoir would. Because basically a farmer gets penalised by the, uh, the current system. If it, essentially, if his, his meat's really, really good, he gets paid less because it's got less protein. And they want a standard across the yeah, board, yeah. don't they? Yeah, well, they want a standard. It's not so much a standard size. It's more they want as much protein as possible so then there's less wasted so the more protein right. it means there's more meat on there compared to bone and fat okay. so they're after something you know when they when the accountants do the sums they want as much flesh on there as possible but it doesn't really matter what it tastes like it's more you know it's just a commodity really yeah. um but you know so if you've got something like say a red ruby which is you know i think up there is some of the best eating beef in the world um and you do it to perfection the abattoir will actually penalize you because there won't be as much meat on it and it you know so they're not being paid for flavor Right. But basically, Warren's basically, yeah, they said to their farmers, they said, right, you carry on farming the way you are. Um, we'll make sure, you know, we buy directly off you um, and we'll guarantee that and we'll guarantee you a better price. And, you know, and he made that decision about 30 years ago. And the funny thing was, I think it was probably financial suicide for quite a long time. But they obviously made it work. But when we started bringing these chefs down, these chefs were like, well, that's exactly what we want. And they wanted yeah. marble, they weren't fat. And I think, you know, I've never talked to Philip Warren about it, but I'd imagine... You know, it must have made his day suddenly having these chefs come down and want the exact me that Philip had always championed. You know, it must Absolutely. be, you know, I'm sure it must be quite special, you know, because I used to see him, he used to talk to me, you know, but I've never actually asked him directly that question, but it must be pretty cool that, you know, now it's all swung around and this is exactly what a lot of the market actually want. Um, yeah, interesting, really. Well, and the interesting thing also is we've led into a position where the things you've described are actually things that are better for the environment, better for the animal, better for the flavour, better for the consumer. And I know you come from very strongly from a position that you feel that the meat industry as a whole has been done a bit of an injustice of, in recent years. And you have a burning ambition to show that grass fed, well looked after um, livestock is, you know, not the danger to the planet that people yeah. claim it. Yeah. Is. Yes, I'm glad you said that. I don't ask because I'm uh, done my naturally been talking about that anyway, dude. So, so well done for us finally getting a question. In. <laughs> um, <laughs> One an hour is pretty um, good, really. You know, that's not bad. <laughs> um, no, so but, right. So we've done this thing in London for like 
10 years and 12 years and I got to know all the journalists and I got to know, you know, also, you know, really got involved. I did loads of different things to, to sort of push things. Um, it just became apparent to me just as, um, I, you know, I know you knew that I had a restaurant, I did all sorts of stuff. You, whether you want to tell me, there's probably more funny stories rather than actual business <laughs> stories there. But, but um, have to talk about the boat that, before you go. Yeah. So what I realized was that, we'd done all this work and we, and I actually started believing myself, you know, you started believing this idea that ter- cows are terrible for the planet. Um, you know, there's the plant based security. We really get rising, you know, their voices were getting louder and louder. Yeah. And you sort of start thinking, well, actually they're probably right. Cause it, you know, you just didn't, you just assumed it. And then, yes. and then also I, I noticed like the, um, the rewilding community would begin to very loud. You know, the idea of just letting nature go and, you know, cattle are terrible for the planet. We need to just let, you know, yeah. things grow and, and do n- nothing essentially. Um, and also, you know, there are the environmental impacts. So I sort of saw, I, I would say three threats like used to call them. I know, I know I call them opportunities, so which is like, um, but what I actually mean is threats, but, but I'll call them opportunities. Yeah. Everyone, everyone says, whenever I talk about them, I must say that they're opportunities. <laughs> but um, that's, that's London people anyway. I think. Anyway, um, so I think rewilding um, plant-based communities, you know, the, the idea of, you know, it's just cruelty to call animals and sentient beings and obviously the environmental impacts, you know, methane. So, so I, I basically, after I had a pub, I then got a houseboat and I just, I remember watching the, I basically spent like three, literally two years on a houseboat in Shoreditch just watching YouTube about 12 hours a day. Um, and I happened upon a podcast by a chap called Alan Savory. Um, so he actually did a TED talk. So Alan Savory's like, okay. he's crazy. He's, he's a fascinating guy. Like, he's probably about, must be 85 now. But he'd basically been in um, Zimbabwe. Um, he's, what if, he was actually in charge of the nature reserves there once. And this is actually a true story. He realized, he thought that they were being overgrazed by elephants. So he actually made a decision to kill 40,000 elephants. Yeah. And you can tell it weighs heavy. But then he's later in life realized that actually he made a huge, huge mistake. And you can tell when he talks about it, you can just see that's a guy who's lived with a big mistake. But I, I quite like people like that because I think it makes you then determined to put things right. So I actually find that quite interesting. I feel sorry for the elephants, obviously. But, um, yeah, um, but he did it because he, he thought it was the right thing, yeah. presumably. And all the, re- all the research at the time suggests it was. Anyway, then he basically took over a load of land in Zimbabwe and then he realised that he looked at like how, you know, before we came along, you know, he looked at the, the big bison, um, the, you know, literally millions of bison that, that were in, say, the North America. And he realised that animals aren't meant to be just plonked in fields. They're actually meant to continually move. And if you continue, you know, and right. his biggest worry was um, diversification. Not, I always get it wrong, desertification, you know, the idea of, you know, deserts, you know, the idea of land becoming so depleted. It becomes, you know, um, dusty, and then, you know, and then you, that's how sort of deserts form. And like a third of the world is is the sort of type of tropical, you know, type of climate where this is happening. So he realised what he started doing was actually getting cattle, putting them into land, but actually meet, keep them on the move. Yeah. And he just realised as he did that, essentially the grass, suddenly these areas that were totally barren were beginning to grow, and spring into life. And essentially, what you're doing, you're mimicking nature. And if you what the idea is, is, you know, his big phrase was, right, we don't actually need less cattle. We more, need more cattle. We just need to, you know, farm them properly. And obviously for me, like, with all my worries, you know, as a, trying to sell meat, I'm like, well, that's, that's obviously absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. But, but I've always hated people. I say hate, it's a whole strong word, isn't it? But if you can watch one Netflix documentary and it changes your whole mind and you change your life, I just think it's a sign of a weak mind. And I, I didn't want to be the same. I was like, right, I'm obviously hearing everything I want to hear, but I want to find out if this is true. So that's when I just started this research and went crazy for you know a long time. But yeah, basically what the idea, yeah. So what it's led to is this um, realising there's something called regenerative agriculture. And it's essentially 
using um, ruminants as a way of regenerating the soil, basically, you know, undoing all the harm that we've done. And I, you know, sort of, you know, thought, right, this all, you know, sounds good, the science is good, but right, I'm actually going to try and do this myself. So that's when I decided to come back, okay. tell mother, tell mother I'm back and try and basically come up with an idea to take on the family farm and then, you know, see for myself if it's actually true. So that was a year and a half ago. Which is so, nothing, you know, it's a very short space of time, it, but, and you're, you're very active on, the, on social media. Yeah. It tends to be the way that you, you know, get out of your head, I think, what's in there and, um, and also keep in touch with the rest of the world when you're down there. But yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's a lot going on there about what you think you're going to try and do and you're learning every day that things happen that you weren't expecting. Tell us yeah. a bit about that because you, you didn't start with beef in the end. You've, you've gone with sheep. Yeah, it was. It was um, so quite normal. So when I, I did the food for a pub called the Adam and Eve in, um, um, in East London, about sort of five years ago. And at that, that time, a guy was doing our distribution, a dry guy called Gavin Hicks, he's an incredible guy. Um, his father-in-law was a farmer looking to slow down. Um, and they came, he said to us, look, my dad's probably too old now to handle cattle. Um, to be honest, I moved some cattle yesterday and they scared me. They are, I yeah. can see. Scary. Like they, are, they are, especially now, you know, they're big things, man. So he said, look, his dad had come up, so he stepped, stepped out, my father-in-law said, he could basically buy sheep, like the basically so the farmer yeah so basically mutton so you say you get a sheep um the lifestyle of the sheep is that it will lamb like five or six times um after that lambing it will have its lambs farmer comes along and he basically replaces 15 percent of his flock each year because the yeah. sheep gets to the age where it's too, either too old to breed or it might have had mastitis or it may have just you know not been you know very good at producing young so the farmer thinks right i'm not breeding from that next year so what farmer then does is that sheep basically goes to a market and you probably get about five local abattoirs, you know, people from there by trying to buy that sheep. Um, and it's generally killed the next day. Yeah. And it's generally then put into, um, for, you know, sort of either kebabs or maybe dog feet, you know, for, it goes basically, so you've got poor animal, it's just weaned its lambs. Um, it's really thin because it's been producing so much milk. Um, it's not in a great state. It's we're straight off, you know, straight into the market, bid in like a pen, bid by pretty barely people who <laughs> aren't, aren't overly sympathetic to the, needs and desires of animals um and then it's <laughs> yeah. and then it's killed so this guy said look why don't i try buying a few of those sheep i reckon if i put them on really good grass i think i can get them really fat and i think it'll be really interesting so he did that and we basically used to break them down and sell them as sunday roast at this pub and it went mental we literally used to have like two or three hundred people a week and i was like right well, okay that, really? it, what, it, and, it, and it, how old are these sheep i reckon they were like for yeah five or six years old um right okay instead of so, being three or four sort of thing yeah, yeah. So, well, your lamb, lamb is between naught and one. Hoggett is one to two. And then above that is mutton. Um, but most lamb will probably be about eight to nine months. Um, spring lamb, for example, the actual definition of spring lamb is a, is a lamb that's still on its mum's milk. So it hasn't actually eaten past it. That's why it's so soft and tender. Right. But it hasn't got much flavour. And to be honest, I, Philip Warren doesn't even do that. We, you know, we let the lamb be weaned and then be on grass. At least it gets a bit of a life. But, um, you know, but, you know, but anyway, I part that idea. And then... I then, when I was on my boat stage, I went out to Extra Madura um, two or three times um, and became very good friends with um, basically the best hamon producer in the country. All right. um, so basically Extra Madura, um, a place called Albuquerque. It's just so funny because like, Albuquerque is the place where all the conquistadors came from. So all those yeah. people who went, you know, I think our colonial past 
certainly in terms of, say, South America, isn't great. But these are the guys who went and so very hard. They're all quite short and stocky, actually, very like me. I think they thought they were laughing. That <laughs> Long I, lost I cousin. They were convinced that's where I came from. So I fitted right in. I just walked around, like, you know, with my little short, stocky <laughs> legs. And everyone else sounds short, but... Is that, so do they do the biota ham and the acorn-fed uh, man? It's the acorn-fed. So basically, it's the Ibirico pig. Um, and what was really fascinating, so in this guy, you know, they're the best. So they've got something called a dehesa. Um, so in the winter, when well, the summer, very dry, very arid. Um, the only thing you'd really there is the like, acorn trees. But essentially, you've got these pigs, like the Ibirico pig. So in the winter, it's freezing. In the summer, it's boiling. Yeah. Um, these animals, during the um, winter months, they're walking around a huge amount of distance because they're basically just um, really fighting for survival. Um, and they, they basically live by rooting up, you know, virgin trees and they're getting living off fungi. So they basically get to about a year and a half and they weigh about 80 kilo. They then, the acorn, they then put them in acorn trees and basically within four months, the eight, they put on, they literally double their size. So they basically go from 80 kilo to 160 kilo in four months. And then, oh. so what you sort of realize with meat is that you know, by everything I've learned from the Warrens, how their systems work and how of that is, if you want world-class meat, you need an animal that's walked around a lot in its life. So it basically gets all that flavor into the muscle. Um, you then need to put a really high quality type of fat on it really quickly at the end. Right. So that to me, you know, the Ibirico is like, you know, to me, I thought it was a perfect system. But when I was at there, I was suddenly like, wait a minute. Like, um, I was like, I thought back to the, um, you know, the, the, the mutton days. And I was like, wait a minute, the sheep, these pigs are like two years old. Sheep are like six, five, six, seven years old. They've walked a lot longer. You know, this is essentially what this guy was doing. You know, he was buying these animals that walked a long way and then he was putting beautiful fat right on the end with a lot of grass. And I suddenly realised why the other stuff was so good. And then also what was more important for me was, you know, I, I make it very clear to everyone that I'm, you know, I'm 47 now, you know, not getting any younger. There's only so much I can learn. There's only so much I can do. You know, I need this. And also, you know, cash flow wise, you know, if you get beef, you you know, you, it's a huge investment and you you might not get any money for about three and a half years and you don't know what the price will be. Right. So for these, you know, sheep, I just thought, right, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a cracker. I think on the family farm, it's something I can do because they're sort of smaller, although some aren't that small. You know, we've got the land to actually suit this. With heavy cattle, you know, you are going to actually really, it's really hard because it is wet um, and you are going to do damage to the soil. So sheep just don't do that. And I thought, you know, I do love my animals and I thought, you know these animals they deserve a decent retirement let's get them let's put them on pasture for six months and then see what we've got so that's basically you know went to mum with the idea i mean it's absolutely hysterical because mum's one of those people who a lot of farmers are the same they just love to look in the field and everything looks identical like you know when she had a Frisians, you know they're all black and white they're beautiful when you're in the red <laughs> ruby cows they're all you know perfect and you know but i basically went to the market and bought like 50 sheep that were actually because it was a time of year they're obviously all skinny but they have Quite a lot it was a real pick and mix, wasn't they, it? Oh man, they were absolutely terrible. Like, you know, I was outbidding like these really burly abattoir people. <laughs> like it was, I was fresh down from London. That was uh, <laughs> that was the funny because like, that was the funniest thing was um, I looked out and this guy's looking at me saying, and it was actually my old cricket captain. So I used to play cricket like 25 years ago down here. And it's Trevor Dingle. He went, Chats, what the hell are you doing here? And I'm like, Trevor. And he said, um, The force, the force, <laughs> I haven't seen it for 25 years. And he said the fourth team were um yeah a, a, a short of the weekend. Can you come and play? Yes. So I did that then playing for my cricket club. and that was brilliant because they basically it was almost like I never left and all of them were sheep farmers. So I ended up I now buy off lots of them actually. But um but basically these sheep so it's absolutely hysterical. So we bought these sheep back 
And a sheep, whatever the sheep is, if it comes to around about May or June, they're wolves long and they all look terrible. And these sheep obviously were thin. We got a mum was just looking at me like, she just hate, you could tell she hated them on the farm. Like, you know, they looked out of place. All of them were different. But I was so obsessed. I went, every day I went and watched them um, eat for about two hours and I just spent time with them and I could actually see how much they were eating and they were, you know, and the grass was plentiful. And they just ate and ate and ate. And I was like, I was thinking, right, this is quite interesting. These animals are eating a hell of a lot. (coughs) I said, I've got no idea what they're like underneath because they've got so much wool. And um, anyway, we got them and then we had to shear them, basically. And it was the first time we weighed them. And we paid a certain amount. We paid not much for them, being absolutely brutal because they were basically going to be killed the next day. You know, Um, and my butcher had agreed to pay us a certain amount per kilo. So mum knew that figure in her head. And we knew that, Probably, if you weighed a sheep, 45% of that would be its like kill weight. So, say if it weighs 50 kilo, when you weigh it, you know, when you kill it, you've probably got about 23 kilo of actual you know, meat. So, that's what right. we get paid for. So, anyway, we did this. So, first of all, we sheared them. We actually had a 17 year old lady shearer who's hard as nails, absolutely incredible. She basically sheared them. And they're used to shearing like quite little things, but these, she was basically trying to, and there was a guy with a helper now, and they were trying to basically shear them and they they could hardly lift them and i was like oh, this is quite interesting um <coughs> and they would shear them they did a good job and when they sheared them every single sheep just looked absolutely like fat they, just, they <laughs> looked fantastic and like mum was like and they obviously because you shear them they all look and they all look suddenly they look you actually see what's underneath yeah and then we weighed them right we weighed them and like you could just see mum doing she's not stupid though she's a pretty canny farmer herself she was doing the um, way in her head. You, you can see her doing it. The first went on, like, you know, and instantly she did her mouth. She's like, oh, shit. We've actually, you know, you got to think we haven't really probably made profit on the farm for like 20 or 30 years, you know, because be, it hasn't That'd been be done. You know, it's, it's just the way farming is, isn't it? You know, because they never put too much resources into it because, it, you know, it's just pretty hard. But anyway, suddenly, like, we've got 50 sheep there. And I reckon, you know, every single one was definitely going to make us decent profit. And suddenly mum's like, you can just see that. The, the, the yeah, maybe, maybe my son's not as stupid as I thought. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a real, like, because I sort of knew. I could see what they're eating. Like, and I kept quiet. You never know. But I was thinking, well, I reckon when they she- when we shear these and weigh them, I reckon this is going to be absolutely hysterical. <laughs> but, you know, it was just, you, it was just like, it, so you suddenly were like, but, you know, they got fat. Like, two or three maybe didn't. I think if they get, really to a certain age it's hard to but but the majority you know but they also just look good you know they like just looked healthy and and i just thought if you'd sheared them when we first got them they would look terrible but after like three or four months on solid grass you suddenly this animal goes from probably not being a great thing to suddenly just a really powerful like happy looking thing you know so they were having a lovely time as well incredible yeah so so yeah basically yeah, that was it. So then what happened was, um, I'm going to go on now, just try and link it to some original thing. Um, so now I've done it myself. And now basically the big thing from Alice Avery is essentially you farm for carbon. So what you're trying to do is, you know, we've got a global warming problem, you know, it's being created by too much carbon in the atmosphere. He had basically said, but, you know, if you, if you graze in a certain way, so basically you graze in a way that so the grass is always growing as much as possible. And if the grass grows, it's basically taking in huge amounts of carbon dioxide. That goes into the soil, turns into sugars and fills all the microorganisms in the soil. And that in turn refeeds the plants and the whole system starts working. So you take chemicals out of the equation. Yeah. You know, as soon as you put chemical fertilizer down, you're basically killing all that microbiology. Um, so essentially, this is called what we call it now is change of agriculture. So, so say you've been using chemicals, fertilizer, pesticides on soil, you essentially have killed all the microorganisms. You only plant plants that feed off 
chemical fertilizer you know you put pesticides in that kill off you know and herbicides that kill off all the other weeds and other plants so you just get up to like a monoculture you're killing the soil but you're feeding one plant and eventually the soil just gives up and i've got a mate that actually happened to him you know arable farmer so with our farm where i took over we we my granddad because of the cattle because of the Frisians, he he planted he was basically given money to plant ryegrass like a monocrop um drain everything so get rid of all the water and then put on loads of chemical fertilizer so basically the you know the fields we took over we've got no microbiology or they didn't have very little so i basically you know i've been using sheep as a way of doing that so yeah essentially you know trying to take the family farm and i think so basically it's called regenerative ag the bit that i'm very interested in is something called silvopasture so and this is important because this is basically what i'm going to dedicate the rest of my life doing and and why i'm so knackered all the time is uh, (laughs) is um i saw a talk um it's really this is getting really funny um there's a, something called the Oxford Real Farming Conference every year up in Oxford, and it's all the alternative sort of farming people. And I went along and I saw this talk by a really nice, such a really soft-spoken chap um, called Steve Gabriel from upstate New York. And basically, he had sheep. Um, he was farming. He had land. He had, like, you know, normal land, and he had a wood. Um, the land, there was a huge, a really horrific drought hit the area, and it was like, you know, people were so bad that people, you know, animals were dying, they were having to sell everything. But he had a wood, so he basically just stuck his sheep in the wood, and they absolutely thrived. Because basically, the root, the tree, you know, if you've had the wood and the roots are so deep going down, you know, you never see a, you know, a dry, wood-ridden, you know, um, wood because they've got such deep rooting. You know, they've got such an advanced soil structure and yeah. roots that they go. So he put his sheep in there, and it just, they just thrived. So basically, what essentially is they call it silver pasture, which is using woodlands um, and you know to, to graze. Um, but, you know, um, it's basically what we always used to do, I think, in this country. It's quite clear that's the farm system was very much using woodland, but we've, you know, forgotten that to become really? more That's efficient. interesting because now you wouldn't dream of seeing a, you know, flock of sheep in a wood, would you? Yeah, you wouldn't. Well, yeah, I think if you follow my, follow my Instagram, you, I'm about to put some in today, actually. That's my, that is my job I've got to do. Um, so basically what it is, but what's really interesting about silver pasture is, so Project Rawdown, a group of American scientists have... Um, but it worked out the top 100 ways that you can actually make money whilst drawing carbon down from the atmosphere. Right. Um, and silver pasture is number nine. So basically, it's the ninth most efficient way of bringing carbon from the air into the soil. Um, and that's basically, so what I did, I saw this talk, and then the, the funny bit of that, so this Steve Gabriel, really soft-spoken, really, um, like, uh, just, a, you know, like he was actually a conservationist, just really nice. But then they did a question and answer thing afterwards, and Steve Gabriel was there. And then this chap called Chris Jones, who's like a Cornishman, was there. I, I didn't know Chris at the time. And Chris just started effing and blinding and swearing. Oh. Oh, but he no. basically, did, but he, oh, no, it was brilliant. It was like, the, the, oh, I just thought, right, that guy, just one of the most charismatic men I've ever met, like seen. I thought, right. And he was, he's basically doing silver pasture down in Cornwall. Uh, he's also obsessed with beavers. Um, so I thought, right, I've got to meet that guy. So I went and met him. And I think it's another like, very important moment in my life. was Because um, I was really worried. I was taking over the family farm. And I just assumed I probably did need to use chemicals. I had to farm. But I just knew I didn't know any of that. And I was really scared. I was like, I don't think I actually know how to farm. Um, I met him. And he sat me down and said, right, Matt, I'm not going to waste your time. He said, do you want me to sum up everything I've learned in 50 years in one sentence? And I was like, oh, okay, okay, that's quite cool. And he said, it's just one sentence. He said, um, yeah, if you farm for nature, then flavor looks after itself. Because obviously I've got an environmental background and I'm obsessed with the environment. You know, I go, for, you know, really obsessed with fishing. Like I'm pretty, you know, I don't think there's many, 
you know, it's not many people I think know more about environmental stuff than me, but, you know, in terms of, you know, just, we're, we're actually just being able to watch nature and love nature. Yeah. And I was suddenly like, right, okay, well, actually, I think I can do that. And I, so then, you know, ever since that day, I thought I'll find nature. Anyway, but anyway, I came back from me, I said to right mum, we've got this super pasture. And my stepdad was there as well. I said, we're going to start planting trees. <laughs> Basically, my stepdad. So I said, if you do that, you know, I'm going to start ripping them up. There's no way we're letting you plant trees in the fields. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, that's not very constructive. <laughs> so anyway, I was a bit like, oh, right, okay, well, if we can't do that, we won't do it. But then we've got basically 10 acres um, of wood. We actually call it the mash. And when I was growing up, we were never allowed in there because it was so dangerous. It was basically so wet and boggy. It was trees. But there were so many stories of animals going in there and being buried alive. You know, it was... Really? And basically what happened was... So what... But obviously, this is like 30 years ago. My nan died 14 years ago. So last November... It was literally last November. I was like a bit depressed. I wanted to do silver pasture, you know. And I, I just thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go into that wood. Maybe I, you know, maybe I probably wanted to, you know, could, like end up underneath the mud. Will I ever I come out? Yeah. No, I, and I was walking around. I was suddenly, and I knew a little bit. I sort of looked around. I was suddenly like, wait a minute, this is like ancient coppice. Wait, this is like so. This is actually this used to be a managed woodland, and what happened was that when my granddad drained all the land, um, all that water went into this woodland, and suddenly it just basically made it a mash and really, you know, incredibly dangerous and that sort of thing. Right. But I suddenly realised, but, but then I was like, right, okay, well, if I'm not if I can't do, you know, this used to be, I mean, so I went to mum and said, right, mum, if I start doing stuff in that wood, you know, what do you think? She said, you can do whatever you want in there. And I'm like, okay, cool. Send him so in there. You know, I, just, I just got a chainsaw and just basically, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, you know, I, I, I realised it was like an ancient hazel coppice, but you know, I've since found out we probably hasn't been managed for 300 years. So literally for 300 years, it's been left. Wow. Um, and then it's been filled with water. But so basically you've had something that nature's just been able to do what it wants with for 300 years, but there's still the remnants of coppice. So you've got like hazel coppice that's been left 300 years. So you've got like, you know, six massive trunks all sticking out. So, so basically what I did was, what I, I call it like sort of um, semi-coppice because I'm not very good at it. But basically I just started cutting trees down to create light. Yep. And I knew if I created light, that would increase biodiversity. You open it up so the wind can come in and that helps dry. And then basically with the air, so I did like about an acre of it and then put some sheep in this year. So coppice, you know, it starts growing, you know, you basically cut off the stump and then shoots come up and yeah. then it's you know, like, then it just regrows. And, but obviously as it regrows, it's putting huge amounts of carbon soil, it's kickstarting everything. And I put the sheep in and to be honest, it's just, you know, like, you know, you think these things might work, but when, and then and last winter, it was a brutal winter, like three months of, coppicing trudging around you know lifting up huge amounts of wood you know it was really tough work but brilliant <laughs> i loved every minute but it was knackered and then you started seeing things grow and you started seeing and then i put the sheep in i listened to the conservationists and they said look don't put them in you know during the summer you know because that that will affect biodiversity so i put them in i wait until like um, middle of july and strange enough in about 10 days time there's a bbc2 documentary and actually they came and filmed the very moment i put the sheep in which is quite cool um, I can't say what that is yet, but I think it will be out, you know, so, but basically the very moment I put them in, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you know later on what it is. And then if you want, yes, you know, please. if you want to tell people, that'd be cool. So basically they filmed the very moment and the sheep went in there and it was like, they'd never been out. They'd never been in coppice or woodland before within a nanosecond. They're climbing out, they're reaching light for leaves. It's just, it was just very obvious that this became so natural to them. And then, the, and then the most incredible thing was I basically had 200 sheep I bought 
170 and beautiful 30 because you know i'm buying a shoot 30 with proper own knackered things that you know just wouldn't put on fat and they just weren't you know they were old you know like proper old sheep their feet some of the feet were terrible i was like you know i was having to do all sorts of things i put them into coppice and within a week every single one of them just transformed like oh, i think they're, they're just getting hope so sheep basically they've got their taste buds on the outside of the nose they've got one of the most sensitive palates in the animal kingdom and they know what nutrients they need but they also can self-heal so they've got as long as they've got a wide diversity of plants to choose from they'll choose the plants that are going to help them yeah. and you when you and I, i'd heard about this and i'd read about this but when you this is purely see, by instinct of course yeah it's t- yeah but it's just in them they just know what they need you know they just know like so for example if they got worms there's um they'll eat stuff that's got a lot of tanning because that will naturally kill worms and like for right. example I, ivy you know is if they eat ivy that will get rid of worms so that you know you could tell i had one actually i called it old wormy i've actually still got it because i i love her the bits she just went straight for the ivy you know she had worms i tried treating her it wasn't getting good she just went for the straight for the ivy and then within a week you know she her feet were really messed up as well but within a week her feet had healed um she was putting on weight you know it just Amazing. so basically they, they're you know you just realize that you know when you so what i'd say is, is as a, i think you asked a question earlier on which i've taken sorry so <laughs> animal, animal transporter now devon library's gone past mobile library really. ah, um go and get point. your catherine cookson for the week <laughs> so love the mobile bank will go next um so what i would say is like people talk about we've only got 30 years of soil left and two all these things um like nature our fields were treated in a way my granddad did everything you know was asked of him stepdad you know they found in a way they thought was right but it essentially hasn't been great for soil but with within one within three months of just changing the system and using sheep properly like the speed that nature comes back this is what i'd say to everyone be optimistic because the speed that nature nature's just waiting to come back and it's so rapid like our soils have just changed dramatically, you know. The You've way you, you that, haven't you, Matt? What's that? You tested that, haven't you? Yeah, well, yeah. So based on getting all my soils tested, we're testing the carbon sequestration. You know, the more organic matter, the more water, the more that it can hold. This time last year, when it rained, our fields just filled up with water and it were unfarmable. Now, like we've had a lot of rain in the fields, like you can just walk past them, you can get a tractor in. Like really? the more you get the more microbiology starts working, the more you know, and I would say its ability to hold water is the first giveaway, but also just the different plants that are coming, just the insects. Like, it's just, you can just tell it's working. The plants just look greener and fresher and, you know, like... It's just like nature confirming you're on the right track, isn't it? It's, not, it's on the right track, but also, like, then nature just takes over. It's like, I've just sort of stopped doing something, just, just farm sheep in a way that they probably would naturally do, which is keep on moving because they'd be worried about predators. That's all we've done. And then nature's like, right, thank you. We'll take over from here. And then nature just cracks like You're not spending loads of money on no. fertilizers no. and all this rubbish. Yeah. So what my butcher would say is, and I sort of agree with him, I think regenerative agriculture is a great, great phrase, but I actually prefer the phrase low input farming. And obviously the less money you spend, the less money you need to make. So you're not under that exactly. same pressure to keep pushing and pushing. Um, you know, now I literally probably use a tractor twice a year. Or I say... All I need for farming is sheep, electric fencing, and a chainsaw, and that's it. And I also think, I sort of say, if I can do it, anyone can. And I don't mean that to put myself down. It's more, you know, if you're willing to work really hard and listen to people, which is so important, just let people know you know bugger all. You know, the chefs I really like are the ones who just said, if they didn't know something, just ask. Like, there's no ego. 
So if you just take your ego out of the equation, just go to a farm and say, I literally know, like those cricketers I talked about, I'll go to them and I'll say, you know, they're just looking at me like I'm an idiot because I'm doing all these things. But, but I think they're liking the fact that I, I just ask them the dumbest question. You know, I'm like to them, I still say, no, the things you learned 20 years ago, I don't know. So just anything you tell me, I guarantee I won't know, however dumb you think it is. And, you know, I, quite, I think they quite like the fact that I am really dumb, but, you know, they just help so much. It needs someone from the outside to, to, to look at things in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I think they're seeing it. Basically, I'm making it work really quickly. So I think, and, and one thing I'm good at is selling and knowing markets. And so I think between that, everyone's just learning off each other. Um, and I'm how, also does that, how does your model then transfer to, you know, it's all very well. You've got a farm, a small holding with a few acres. You can put 200 sheep in and you can see the difference. But what if, you know, how do we transfer that to the general mass market that is the problem here? I think... Um, I think for farms like mine, I do have to aim for that high end. You know, that's just one of those things. You know, it's because yeah. it's a small farm, I need to make a certain amount of money per animal. However, where, again, another point of huge optimism is, and a friend of mine called Fred Price, and I think he's the true genius of British farming at the moment. He, um, he's another guy like Philip Warren, really, like Tom Adams. You know, like, just thank God that they took up farming because just a super brain, really, and a lovely guy. Um, he farms 200 acres of arable up in Somerset, um, and he, he went to university, went to Oxford, Oxford Cambridge. Um, his parents wanted him to do this and that, but he decided to run the family farm. Um, he was a brilliant chemical farmer for five years. He was studied chemicals, he studied you know, the yields, um, but he realized that he was spending more and more money on yield. His yields were going up, like any, you know, any brilliant farmer, yeah. but what he's realizing it was that his actual profit was staying exactly the same, yes. and he was getting more in debt to the bank. And, and then one year, probably about six years ago, the yield collapsed. So yield suddenly put the same amount of money and he was racking his brain, why have I done, I've done what I've done every single year? The yield, rather than going up, has crashed. And he realised that the microbiology in the soil had just gone. You know, it had had enough and it you know, right. had been killed off. So then he was like, I need a new start. So what he did then was um, he bought some Tamworth pigs. He took 28 acres out of arable production, planted um, a herbal lay, which is like probably about 36 different seeds into a thing, let it grow, the Tamworth come in and graze it. Um, and basically that starts basically getting the soil working, puts, you know, carbon into the soil, gets the microbiology working. And then after about three years of that, he then replants like actually a heritage wheat. And he was finding those heritage wheats absolutely flew. And something called black grass, which is horrendous for farmers, that didn't even grow. You know, people probably do about five sprays of um, herbicide now just to get rid of black grass. Fred realised that probably because these old species were so tough and resilient they were probably out competing black grass and it wasn't an issue so what i sort of looked at with fred system is and there's other people doing it now i think if we're going to get the price of meat well get meat to a very high quality but at a price affordable i think it's the arable system you know it's basically what they used to do mixed farming using livestock to re-keep the soil regenerate yeah. the soil and that but now we know the actual science of it you know so i did some basic sums as well and you know looking at say the plant-based community you know um, there's lots of reasons why I think the plant-based community really need to be careful. You know, they, they, they're definitely going down, a, I think, in a pretty bad direction. However, one point I think we can all agree on is factory farming is terrible. And, I, you know, it's disgusting. <laughs> it's just Absolutely. the way we treat pigs and, pigs and chickens in particular is just, like, it's just inhumane. You know, it's, however, what I did some basic sums that if 25% of farmers used, you know, pigs like Fred does to regenerate their soil, 
Then at the moment, we've got 9 million pigs in factory farms. Um, we could basically, if 25% of farmers did what Fred did, then all those pigs in factory farms could actually come out of factories and be on land. So rather than us having to grow grain and stuff for them and feed it into a factory, you could actually have those pigs come out and they would actually eat just normal grass or, you know, her, you know different herbs. And they would also be replenishing the soil at the same time. So to me, it's just an absolute no-brainer. And that, and at the moment, Fred was putting a huge amount of money to his inputs. Now, his input is actually one of his outputs because, like, the thing that's providing all the fertility, the fertility of the system, is something that you can actually sell as meat. So I think in time, I think as this catches on and it gets bigger, I think we, you know, that's where the revolution can happen. As long as you get supermarkets on board, as long as you get distribution right. I'm convinced we can eat, you know, very large quantities quantities of meat that's very good for you and actually is doing good for the planet. And like Fred's gone from a one percent organic matter to a five percent organic matter in about five years, which basically means he's now storing huge amounts of carbon in his soil. So, you know, that's probably like twenty tons per acre more per year you know the ability for these things to create to store carbon is just frightening you can you still hear me by the way yes mate yeah oh yeah so so i don't know if you've um so you know like i said before um i hate people who, who watch one program on netflix <laughs> and change their whole mind right however there is one program on netflix <laughs> that you're allowed to watch <laughs> and i feel really silly saying it but there's a program on netflix is just They've just released a documentary called Kiss the Ground. Um, and it's essentially all about regenerative farming. And it's the first time I've seen like a mainstream program about it. So I think there's definitely a big groundswell. There's a lot of people into this now. And I would say it's almost like the biggest secret in the, in the world, really, is that you've got all these farmers behind the scenes re- realising this work. I mean, I, I didn't want to believe it. I, 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 I wanted to believe in Regenag, but then I thought I'm going to actually do it myself. And now I, I now have my soils tested every, you know, for, I've just had my second test this week. So I'm going to find out in the last year how much carbon I've actually put in the soil. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be, you know, like hundreds of tons. Um, you know, it's when you actually see it, you see what nature is ready to do. You know, it's just obvious that farmers can actually play a huge, huge role in, you know, reversing climate change and getting people eating the right thing. You know, it's just a really exciting time to be part of it. But there's a lot of, you know, you see the British government this week or last week, you know, they're looking like they're going to free up trade to America to import rubbish. And, you know, the rewilding community are getting very, very loud. I mean, I want to love the rewilding community, but they're just being such, they're just getting a bit, you know, a bit anti-farming. My system, I'm trying to find a third way. I'm trying to find a way where I can rewild, but also make money and also do great for the environment. And that's, I think, there's a balance you know not that's what i'm hoping to find yeah, really. and that's what we're not very good at these days is you no, know yeah. people shout and say my way is the only way <laughs> fuck yeah. the rest of you and, and yeah. life isn't like that is it well when you actually see people face to face it's all right but like social media twitter in particular so does not do much like no. I, mean, I, find my, I find myself doing it i'm suddenly like having a real like two or three times i've started having a real go at someone and, and then i find out they know a lot more than me and then i become apologetic i've actually become really good friends with like two or three of those people yeah <laughs> like, it's a very but, shouty space isn't yeah, it as you say if we were all together in a room you wouldn't dream of speaking to someone no, like that. no you just wouldn't you wouldn't but you know listen but, matt i know that you've got to get on and and do stuff and i could talk to you all afternoon it's it's fantastic to hear what you're doing <laughs> and also a bit of good news you know in this you know doom and yeah. Living, but yeah. there is hope out there. What's the name of your farm? 
Well, the farm I actually is Lower Town Farm. Um, if you do want to look me up, I do something which is actually the Cornwall project. Yeah, that's why I laughed at the beginning because, like, my, I was born in Cornwall. I went to London for twelve years, called it the Cornwall project, where the family farms actually in Devon. So my whole <laughs> life, my whole life's been a lie. But so on Instagram, I do something called the Cornwall project. Um, on Twitter, I'm Cornish Grill. Um, but yeah, I think if you follow me on Instagram, I, what I found was like during the crisis last year. Um, so many new followers came and so many people started following farmers. So what sort of, I mean, I'm daft as a brush. I'm fairly honest. I'm, I'm there, you know, if you do want to, <laughs> if, if we are going to go for a lockdown or it's, you know, to feel free to watch and ask questions. Cause I, now I'm more conscious that people are watching us farmers cause they probably are stuck inside or, you know, and I think, you know, we've almost got a responsibility now to, if they be, you know, to get people involved as we can. And I do, we know, I definitely think farmers were the window a lot of people had to the real world last year and it was great for farming but also like you know we, we need to you know i just think i get the feeling that's gonna become more important in the next month or two as well really so yeah give, give us a follow on the corbel project um you'll find that it's not all about killing animals i've got a few pets and you know soft as soft as hell really but um yeah but feel free <laughs> well, to what find. i love about you you're not shy of you're obviously as your passion speaks for itself but you're not shy of an objective and i remember one of your quotes was you want to make the farm one of the world's known farms for yeah. changing things and that is no little thing you know that's a hell of an objective and i think that's fantastic well that was um just to finish that so so when nan died i did make three promises and i, I promised that i would um basically dedicate the rest of my life to helping livestock farmers which i've done I also promised I would um, make sure mum was all right, which I'm sort of doing. And, and the third promise was I, I, you know, I wanted to make it the most famous farm in the world. And since then, I've, I've realised that I just hate the idea of that. However, <laughs> a promise is a promise. So I'm sort of like, right, okay, I did make that promise. So, but I think, I think you know, if I can, I don't know. I, to be honest, since the coronavirus as well, like you've realised the people who did actually quite well, you know, you, you've got to have a, a name and I, I think I am on something quite important. I am doing it for, I think, pretty, you know, decent reasons. So I'm like, right, you know, I, I think I do have to get well known now. You know, so we've got this BBC Two thing coming along. I think Nan would have been absolutely proud. <laughs> I feel almost tearing up thinking about it, really. But I think Nan would have been, you know, it would have been, you know, I think it's going to be quite good what we did. And I think really, I don't know, we'll have a bit of fame after that. But don't, never take yourself too seriously, <laughs> to be honest. Well, that's the key to a happy yeah. life, I think, mate. But you're yeah. doing great job and you must be very proud and and um anything i can do personally to help you know you only have to ask one day i'd love no, to come down I'm, and cast a line with you mate and um there, I mean, there is one request my we've got a lady she doesn't actually do our pr but she does my butcher's pr so a lady called jess corrigan right um she's very obsessed with cigars so she's asked she's i'm not being a helper with, then <laughs> what's that yeah so basically so I think she, she's awesome. I said, do you think I ought to do this? You know, can you have a look? She said, I don't care. I don't care whether you do it or not. I want a cigar. So I think, um, so I might put her in touch with you. She's brilliant, actually. I might just put her in touch with her. Get her in touch. So, yeah, um, get her in touch. You can help her out. Or, and I'll, yeah. um, I'll send her a little something. Yeah, she's up in London. That's cool, man. That'd be amazing. That'd be, well, she's down here quite soon. So if you did give her a cigar, she can bring it down and we'll share it, I reckon. That'd be awesome. Right, That'd be incredible. That so, sounds like a plan. That's brilliant. I'll let you get on. That's so much, much of your time, Matt. Right. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nick. Good luck. And come down fishing next year. You know, when the salmon are running next September, come down then and we'll 
We'll see if we can get you a nice bar of silver. Oh, mate, I'd love to do that. It's a date. Cheers, buddy. Okay, all right. Bye, thank you. Take care. Well, I hope you found that as fascinating as I did, and it just gives you an inkling of the real passion that Matt has for what he's doing. And he's following a path, and he's not really sure exactly where that path is going, but he's following it anyway. What he is sure of is that he is being led in the right direction. And uh, and I will keep in close contact with him. Thank you for your time, Matt. A fascinating character, and I suspect you will see him popping up more and more. That's all we've got time for this week, really. Only to remind you that the audiobook of Around the World in 80 Cigars is available for immediate download from my website, which is www.nick-hammond.com. You can also order yourself a copy of the book there. If you'd like it personally signed to you or a friend, drop me a line. Uh, just visit the website. Be remiss of me not to mention that uh, Leggett's X Nick Hammond Oriental Cigar Gin is out there and uh, selling really well. Uh, will be available in more cigar shops near you soon. But of course, you can check that out at www.leggetts.com. Thank you for listening. Always a pleasure to spend a bit of time with you. I hope you enjoy your Friday, your weekend, or whenever you're listening. Uh, remember to stay safe, and I hopefully will uh, catch up with you in person real soon. Until then, be good and look after each other.